Our sermon text for this morning is from 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. Again, give careful attention to the word of our God. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. The word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your sure and perfect word. As we look at it this morning, open our ears and our hearts so that we would understand it and then live in accordance with it so that each day we glorify you as our God and our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. In the United States, over 612,000 abortions have occurred so far this year. Same-sex marriage was legalized by the Supreme Court four years ago. Depending on your occupation, you might lose your job or you could be sued if you don't refer to someone by their desired gender and try to figure out the number of specified genders today. I mean, you might have thought, well, there are two. No. Some websites say 33, or 58, or 63, and one even says, it's unlimited. We could go on and on about the ways our culture is getting farther and farther from the Word of God. Farther and farther into insanity. How do you live in a mixed-up world like that? What's a follower of Christ supposed to look like? 
Throughout the last 2,000 years, Christians have lived and are living in all sorts of cultures, and those cultures have all sorts of values. Some are closer to Scripture, and some are very far away. That question, how to live, it's not new at all. It's always been before us, and in fact, that's one of the questions dealt with in the book of 1 Peter. With today's passage in chapter 2, we're jumping into the middle of that letter. And before we do that, you know, what, what, is the, what do we know about the letter? What, when was it written? To whom was it written? Why was it written? What was going on and how does this passage fit into it? We should have some idea of those things before diving in here. And just from the name of the letter, you might guess it was written by the Apostle Peter. You would be right. And if you remember, Peter was the apostle to the circumcision. In other words, he was the apostle to the Jews, while Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. And the apostle Peter wrote this letter, as it says in in chapter 1, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Well, what does that mean? Well, those five, eight, five regions, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, they're all part of Asia Minor. That's what we currently know as Turkey. It's an area about the size of California. And there were several cities scattered throughout, but it was really mostly a rural area, sparsely populated, especially as you moved farther east. And the people at this time who were living there, were a mixture of all kinds of ethnicities and races and religions, even spoke different languages. How did it get that way? Well, it's an area where a lot has happened through history. If you read the Old Testament, you read about the Hittites all the way back from Abraham through to David. They were here way back then. The Assyrians who conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, they were here during that time, before they became an empire. When Greece was an empire, they conquered this area and settled in different regions in it. So that, as well as a lot of other wars, a lot of things have happened in this area. This this mixture of people has been there over a long period of time. So they view themselves as native to the area. But then the next thing that happened was Rome became an empire. Rome had a tendency to annex and colonize areas, and they did that to Asia Minor. And when Rome colonized an area, they would take people from from somewhere that were loyal to Rome, and they would send them into this new area. They would grant them land, give them privileges. Often they would send retired veterans of the army there. They would be given land. And they would become governors and rulers in the area. As you can imagine, the native people, they didn't like this at all. They didn't like all of these foreigners coming in and taking over. By New Testament times, Rome had been in power for quite a while. And that kind of dynamic had been happening here in this area for decades. And then Claudius became the emperor of Rome. He reigned from 41 to 54 AD. That's during the time of the book of Acts. He was very aggressive at colonizing this area. And at the same time, he was a champion 
for the Roman gods. He would expel people from Rome who were troublemakers. And of course, troublemakers, well, that was those who didn't abide by the Roman moral standards, the standards of their religion. And then even worse, troublemakers were those who converted the Romans from the religion of the Roman gods. Well, guess who got expelled? Now, many of the Jews, they wouldn't worship the Roman gods, so they're a problem. And of course, the Christians, they wouldn't worship the Roman gods, but the Christians were even worse. They evangelized the Romans. They converted them to faith in Christ. So they're double troublemakers. Rome viewed the Christians as a sect of the Jews, and they, they expelled both the Jews and the Christians together. And this time of being expelled, it was called the dispersion. Acts chapter 18, verse 2 gives us a little glimpse of it. It's talking about Paul when he was in Corinth, and it says, He found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, one of the, the areas we're talking about, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. So Aquila and Priscilla were among many other Christians who were expelled. By the time Peter wrote this letter, there were young churches scattered in the cities of Asia Minor. But remember, none of the people there, none of the native people liked the invasion of the foreigners that had moved in. And the Roman veterans who are in charge, well, they don't like the troublemakers that were expelled from Rome. So the Christians experienced difficulties and persecutions from multiple directions. And, and Peter writes to these pilgrims, to these foreigners. He writes a letter to be taken throughout the entire region to encourage them, to tell them how to live in the midst of these difficult times. Now, if you read the whole letter, you'll see that one of the major themes is how to live in the midst of trials and persecution. Right up front in chapter 1, and then also here in chapter 2, one of the things that Peter does is he anchors the people in who they are as Christians. If you've read Paul's letters, you know he does that up front as well. But Peter explains it a little differently, and then he instructs them how they're to live in light of who they are. In chapter 1, starting in verse 2, Peter makes it clear that even though they may be experiencing rejection, by others. They're elect. They're chosen by God. And in verse 3, they're begotten again. They're made new. They're made new to a living hope. So there's no reason to despair. There's every reason to be confident, in fact. And how do they have this living hope? Well, it's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then in verse 4, that confident, living hope is toward an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and it does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter, with those words, gives them great hope and assurance because God chose them. Christ died for them and rose from the dead, and their inheritance in Christ and their salvation is not kept by them. No, it's kept by, by God. 
And because of all this, as chapter 2, verse 3 says, they have tasted that the Lord is gracious. So that's all a great anchor for them and for us. It's a great anchor for us to remember and to give, us, and to give thanks for in the midst of difficulties and trials, in the midst of a crazy world. And in light of all of that, in chapter 2, starting in verse 4, our text today, Peter, he then draws from several places in the Old Testament to give them an even greater picture, a picture of, of who they are and how they're to live. Now, if, if I say the word temple, what comes to your mind? You might think of some Eastern religion, a temple of Eastern religion, but since we're in church and we're talking about the Bible, you probably would think of the temple of King Solomon. But with the place with the holy place and the, the holy of holies and where they did all of the sacrifices, that definitely would have been in the minds of Peter's readers. When they read the scriptures, all they had was the Old Testament. And they would have known much about, what the, temp, about the temple because... Many of them used to be Jews. Peter doesn't even use the word temple here in the letter. But because of all of the metaphors and all of the Old Testament references he uses, that's clearly what they would be thinking of. Here in chapter 2, Peter draws on that knowledge, but he puts in there a surprising twist. He calls the Christians collectively a temple. Not the building, but the people. He wants, them, he wants to take their understanding of the temple in the Old Testament and change it. He wants them to see what the temple was really all about. It has great significance and applies to them in their current situation. And as we'll see, it applies in the same way to us now in our situation, in our culture. In order to understand what he's getting at, we need to understand more of what both he and his readers took for granted from their background. There was the, the portable tabernacle from the time of Moses. This is looking at the fact of where the, where the temple came from. You know, it, it started out with the portable tabernacle, the time of Moses, and it was followed by the fixed temple built by Solomon. That was all God's institution. It wasn't something dreamed up by the Israelites. Repeatedly, we find in the book of Exodus that Moses was to build the tabernacle exactly according to the pattern he saw on the mount. In Exodus 25, 8 and 9, God says, And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them. According to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle. And the pattern of all its furnishings. Just so, you shall make it. And then the book of Hebrews picks up that in chapters 8 and 9. And says, the reason it was to be so exact was because it was patterned after the true tabernacle in heaven. And it pointed to the ultimate sacrifice offered by the ultimate priest before the ultimate holy of holies. To deal finally with our sin. So the temple here on earth was God's institution patterned after the temple in heaven to point to Christ and because of that, 
It defined who the people of God were. And Peter is saying the church has become the temple. Just think of the temple in the Old Testament and how it corresponds to different aspects of the church. It was where the Israelites were to gather on their high days for worship. We gather weekly for worship. It was the center from which the word of God was to come. We hear the word read and sung and preached. It was the center of God's self-disclosure. It's where God manifested himself in glory and was present among the people. We as the church are now his presence on earth. The temple was the center of the entire sacrificial system, which dealt with sin. And we corporately bow before him and confess our sin. It was the center of corporate praise, of corporate worship and adoration. And from the time of David on, it was the place of sophisticated music with instruments and choirs. And we praise God with with music, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It was the center of priestly activity. We are now his priests. All of those things about the temple, both Peter and his readers, would have had in their minds when Peter starts talking about the church, his people as the temple. Then a second thing we need to understand is the context of those Old Testament passages that Peter quotes. He's pulling many things together from the Old Testament. His readers, they would, they would remember those things. They would know about them. I mean, if, if I were to say, for God so loved the world that, you'd instantly think of, 1 John, or of John 3.16. And you'd be able to complete it, probably. And many of you would remember that that's, that's in the midst of the conversation Jesus had with Nicodemus, the Pharisee when he came to Jesus at night to talk with him. Well, in the same way, when Peter quotes these passages in the Old Testament, he and many of his readers would have known the background. They would have known the context surrounding them. And we'll, we'll need to look at those things as we follow what Peter says. So, in, verse, in verses 4 and 5, there Peter is looking at the overall construction of the temple. And he says, coming to him, that's, that's to Jesus. And look how he describes Jesus. Coming to him as to a living stone. Rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. Jesus is a living stone in this temple. And then he talks about the people. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So in one sense, it's clear that he's not talking about a granite or or marble temple. No, it's a spiritual temple. It's one in which Jesus is the cornerstone. In the construction of that day, the cornerstone would be the first stone put in place. It would have to be straight and true because... The cornerstone would define the rest of the building. It would set the elevation. It would determine how level the building was. It would determine the angle of the walls. So Peter is saying that Jesus is the cornerstone that defines this building. But of course, he doesn't want us to think of Jesus just as 
as a hunk of stone. No, he calls him a living stone. And that, that not only means that he is a living person, but it brings in the fact that he is risen from the dead. He's alive and he shapes this temple by who he is as the resurrected Christ. He was actually rejected by the builders, but God overruled the builders. And he made Jesus the most important stone, the defining stone of the temple. Then as Peter continues in verse 5, as we've noted, he says, we also are living stones. We're each part of this temple. This temple that Peter refers to as a spiritual house. A house formed not by the hands of men, but by the Holy Spirit. And next, Peter puts a twist in there. He twists this metaphor a little bit because he says, we're not only the living stones of the temple, we're also the temple's priesthood. Stones aren't normally in that role. We offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We're living stones that make up God's temple, his presence here on earth, resurrected with Christ, and we're the priests of the temple offering spiritual sacrifices to God. So Peter's, excuse me, Peter's using several metaphors about the temple, and then next, he begins quoting from the Old Testament where those metaphors come from. Verse 6, he looks at the foundation. He says, therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Now, this is a quote from Isaiah 28, verse 16. We read that earlier in our Old Testament lesson. In the context of chapter 28 in Isaiah, It's speaking against the princes and the leaders of Jerusalem. They thought their city would never be overthrown. God's temple is here. Nothing can happen. But over, for over a century from Isaiah on, God sent other prophets up to the time of Jeremiah. And the prophets were calling the people to repent of their idolatry. They were calling them to live like the people of God, as priests to the nations. But even in Jeremiah's time, the leaders still believed the same thing. And they wouldn't repent from their idolatry. They completely missed what the temple was all about. And they missed what they were about as God's chosen people. They viewed the temple as as like a magic charm that that guaranteed no one could conquer them no matter what they did. So instead of being the priestly nation that brought other nations to God, oh, they worshipped idols. And they lived like the people that God had cast out before them. Though Isaiah, through Isaiah, God says, he will judge Israel, and then he will lay a different, sure foundation, not like the one that they trust in now. And Peter pulls all of that context in and says, now. Now we're dealing with that different foundation, that different temple. It's not the one made from rocks that you carve from the mountain. No, this 
This temple, in it, Jesus is the cornerstone. It's belief in Him that secures that foundation that will never fail. Not Mount Zion, not Jerusalem, not a temple made by hands. The Israelites had wrongly trusted in a physical temple rather than, rather than in what the temple pointed to. Rather than in God and His provision for them. And they were judged and wiped out. They should have been concerned about what was going on around them and about the idolatry that they were taking part in. They should have been concerned and they should have turned to God. But they didn't. The churches that Peter is writing to, they're concerned about the difficulties and the persecutions that they're going through. And Peter is is showing them that now we have Jesus. The sure foundation that, that Isaiah told about. And whoever believes on him will by no means be put to shame. So in the midst of what you're going through, trust in Him. Not in anything you make or do, but trust in Him. Then he continues continues in verse 7. He says, Therefore to you who believe, He is precious. That word precious means He's greatly honored. He's valued above everything else. The Israelites... They put great value on Solomon's temple. And they missed what it was about. It was about the God who dwelt in the temple among them. And now Jesus dwells in them. He is what the temple and all of the sacrifices pointed to. So again, believe in him. Then Peter continues addressing those who do not believe in verse 7. He says, but to those who are disobedient... The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Those are quotations from Psalm 118, which we had in our, in our responsive reading, verse 22, and then Isaiah 8, 14. And Jesus himself refers to those two passages in Matthew 21. And the parable of the wicked tenants that we also read earlier. Remember, the master sent his servants to collect fruit from the vineyard. And and those servants were beaten up. And some of them were killed. Eventually, the master sent his own son. But they killed him. And Jesus speaks to the leaders of Israel. Killing the Son of God sent to them. The one they should have been looking for. The one they should, they should have been bringing the nations to. And he quotes this passage. He says, the stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And then he adds, therefore, I tell you, that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. That is the church. But for the builders who rejected God's cornerstone, Jesus says in Matthew 21, verse 44, He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. He He on whom it falls will be crushed. You hear the note of exclusiveness there. Jesus is, is making it clear as Peter does. There is one 
dividing point. There's one cornerstone. You can either be shaped by and defined by him, by believing in him and living for him, or you can be crushed by him in judgment. There are no other options. He's the one who constrains and defines the people of God. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament expectations. He's the one on whom all of these predictions are focused. And apart from him, there is no salvation. To defy him, to disown him, to dismiss him, in fact, is to be crushed by him. Peter knew that message well. In his sermon in Acts chapter 4, he says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by men, to men by which we must be saved. The people Peter was writing to were having a difficult time. They're suffering. In chapter 4 verse 12, he even calls it a fiery trial. It would be so much easier just to blend in. So much easier to worship the Roman gods and the emperor. So much easier to, to practice the, the sexual sin the way the Romans did. And in so many other ways, it would be easier to live like them. But as Peter quotes from Isaiah chapter 8, he makes it clear from the context. He says, if we look at chapter 8, starting verse 11. For the Lord spoke thus to me, to Isaiah, with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people. So here's what God said. Do not say a conspiracy concerning all this that the people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. The Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. He will be a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble. They shall fall and be broken, be snared and taken. Peter drives the lesson home. In verse 8, he says, Out of fear they stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. <clears throat> A missionary to Costa Rica was ready to return to Costa Rica after an extended stay in England and the United States. And he, he wrote about his impressions of his time. He said, The dominant feeling I get increasingly in Western churches is of fear. People are afraid. They're afraid of what's going on in the culture. They're afraid of what's going on in the society. They're afraid of the meaninglessness bound up with their young people. They're afraid of their own futures. Out of fear, they lash out. They score points. They build empires. We are a frightened people, a frightened culture. When, there, when there's uncertainty, when there are trials, pressures from the culture, when there's 
political craziness and and moral chaos, it's easy to become fearful. But we need to hear what God said to Isaiah and what Peter brings to bear in a time for them of massive change and a threat to them. He says, don't don't fear a conspiracy. Don't fear what others dread or what, what man can do. The Lord shall be your fear, and he himself will be the stone that will crush the people who reject him. God himself will be that stone. Fear him. So the temple, the place of the presence of God, is being built. Jesus himself is the living cornerstone, the stone stone that defines the whole building. And we must believe in him because he is that sure foundation. And as we do, we are each living stones in that temple. And we're carved and shaped by the trials and the difficulties that we go through as we trust in him. And that's how we're made to fit in our proper place. And we're kept there by the power of God. So that's the construction and the foundation of the temple. Now let's look at the significance of the temple. In verses 9 and 10, what's the temple really all about? Now remember, in verse 8, the disobedient were appointed to stumble. Verse 9 starts with, but. But you are a chosen generation. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Just thinking about, just reading those words is amazing. And with them, Peter is alluding to Exodus chapter 19. He goes back to the Old Testament again. That's where Moses is addressing the Israelites after they have come out of slavery from Egypt and they're about to receive the law. God says to them, you've seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and I brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God redeemed Israel. He claimed them as his people, distinct from all the other nations. Then he commissioned them. He commissioned them as a kingdom of priests to offer up worship and praise to God, and then live in the land and mediate the glory of God to the nations around. They were to obey him, to obey his voice, and keep his covenant. Yet we know what happened. They turned to other gods. And it got so bad in the days of the prophet Hosea that they had become lo ami, which means not my people. They were no longer the people of God. But in his mercy, God looks forward to the time when he will restore his people. And Isaiah talks of that in chapter 61 of Isaiah. 
He says, you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of God. And that actually includes the Gentile nations. In chapter 19, Isaiah says, the Egyptians and the Assyrians will worship together. And that day, Israel will be the third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. Now, if, if you remember back to your Old Testament history, these were some of the arch enemies of Israel. And yet, in the future, God is saying, along with Israel, they will be blessings, worshiping God. That's the sort of fulfillment that Peter proclaims here. There's a new covenant temple. A spiritual temple. And the, grace, and the grace of God will restore a disobedient, rebellious Israel. And that grace will also extend to the pagans like Egypt, Assyria, and even to you and me. And that's only done by the coming of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. He's the cornerstone on which the entire temple is built. And not only then does this passage tell us what we are as the temple, but it also tells us what to do. It says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That sounds a bit like Hebrews 13, 15, and 16. He says there, Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. And then in Romans 12.1, Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. The temple was always a place for the sacrifices of, of lambs and bulls and, and goats. But now, the final blood sacrifice has been made by Jesus on the cross. As we have become the temple and the priests, now our sacrifices are praises. And they are our our deeds, our good deeds, and our entire life. The temple was a symbol of God's presence among the people. And now our purpose as the temple is to be God's presence to those around us and to bring them near to him. That's the view of redemption that Peter lays before his readers. And then with, with that backdrop, Peter says... Therefore, here's how to live in this world. He fleshes that out really through the, the rest of the entire letter. But he starts in this way, in the next two verses, in verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. There's at least three things to look at here. First is 
remember your heavenly citizenship. The people of Asia Minor, as we've talked about already, those who Peter wrote to, they were foreigners. And the context of being living stones here in the new temple and priests, that that whole idea of foreigners takes on a double meaning. As God's people, we will always be foreigners to a world where sin is present. As Paul says in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. So no matter what happens here, we are seated at God's right hand with Christ. And we are to set our minds on the things of God, not on the things of earth. So first, our citizenship is in heaven. Second, that means we're in a war. And we need to remember the nature of that war. As foreigners, as citizens of heaven, Peter says we must abstain. Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against our soul. The warfare we're in is a warfare against sin. That sin, is, it, it's in the people around us, and it's within us too. If we don't take this warfare seriously, then we won't fight sin seriously. We won't fight it seriously in our own minds, in our own hearts, and in our own churches. So we need to remember our warfare is with sin. And third, we need to remember our calling. As the last part of the verse says, have your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. In the first century, Christians were suspected of all kinds of horrible things. They were suspected of treason against the empire because they wouldn't offer incense to the emperor who was treated as a god. They were suspected of cannibalism because of the Lord's Supper with the body and blood of the Lord. We're accused of hating women because we don't want babies murdered. We're accused of hatred because we believe what God says in Genesis, that marriage is between one man and one woman. How are Christians going to refute those things and many others like them? In the first century, they couldn't take out a full-page ad or, or launch an online media campaign as if that would have helped anyway. No, they were to refute those things by the quality of their living. So that while the libels and the criticisms run through the empire, those who come to know Christians, they'll know, well, those things aren't true at all. These are people of integrity. They're people of honor, people of service, people of self-sacrifice. Peter says, what we can do when the whole world seems to be against us, is to proclaim the praises of God and then be the people of God with integrity and godliness and self-sacrifice and love amongst them. So eventually, just by seeing the way we live, in addition to our proclaiming of God's praises, 
people will see something of the glory of God in us. And then either they will glorify God or they will be crushed by Him. You know, it's interesting, if you read this passage in the authorized or the the King James Version, you'll see that in verse 9 it says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. We're supposed to be peculiar. Now, of course, there are many ways in which Christians must not be peculiar. You, know, you, can, you can look around and you can see people doing all kinds of really strange, bizarre things. And we're not supposed to do that and see just how weird we can be. That's not what it's talking about. Yet there are ways in which we ought to be peculiar. There are at least two in this passage. One is in the area of faith and gratitude. We're the temple of God, chosen in Christ, bought and shaped by the cornerstone. Called of God to be God's kingdom and priests, to utter his praises to the nations. As we do that, we're going to look peculiar to people who are in rebellion against him. And that's okay. Then the second area is the area of, of conduct, of lifestyle priorities. Here too, we must be peculiar. Definitely to those who don't know God. We're to abstain from, from sinful desires, the things that they pursue. We're to watch our thoughts. We're to think differently about our vocation. We're to think differently about our families, about sexuality. We're to think differently about our pocketbooks. In every way you can think of, we belong to the one true God, and that makes us different. Different from those who reject him. One of the main false gods is self. We even have Self Magazine, if you've seen that. The driving desire is for self, to fulfill yourself, to feel good about yourself. Everything is all about me. But God in his mercy calls us to die to self. If you serve self, you find nothing but the grave. You are crushed by the cornerstone. In Matthew 16, 25, Jesus said, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. To a world serving the God of self, that will look peculiar. That will look the way it should. And as we live that way together, as living stones of God's temple, and as priests with sacrifices of praise and good deeds and and our very lives, some Some will hate it, and they will be crushed. And some will see it and give glory to our God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have taken us out of darkness and put us into your marvelous light. Yet we are still in the midst of a fallen, rebellious, chaotic world. Give us strength and courage and understanding to live as your temple, to be the presence of Christ to those around us, and to live as your priests. May we live 
and praise you in such a way that they turn to you and give glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.